Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 397, William, The Devil Inside. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, the members are listening to a shop talk on the Cartesian mind-body split, and how that's probably informing a great deal more about your biases and feelings than you think it might be. And so if you'd like to take a look under the hood and see what's driving things, and also how far back some of those drives tend to go, you can listen to that episode and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Louisa, Marvis, and Tucker for signing up already. It was Christmas Day of 1066, and England was crowning its new king. In celebration, the king's men, heavily armed and backed by divine authority, were going from building to building, taking whatever they wanted, doing whatever they felt like to the people inside, and then lighting it all on fire. Merry Christmas. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. The first act of Norman rule was to burn and loot the capital of England. Now, why did they do this? Well, Poitiers tells us that the Norman knights were burning, looting, and presumably murdering their way through London because they heard the cheers coming from within Westminster Abbey, and they thought that William was being attacked. Poitiers insists that these armored and armed knights were so afraid of these cheers that rather than rush into the abbey to save their duke, who, remember, they believed to be in mortal danger... Instead, they valiantly rode out and set London on fire. It's an explanation that strains credibility beyond the breaking point. It's so bad, in fact, that I've read historians, who are normally quite sober and respectful of these sources, castigate Poitiers for attempting to spread such obvious nonsense. Which is honestly kind of impressive, because many times these are the same historians who totally let it slide when Poitiers does things like say that William stopped a rout at the Battle of Hastings through the sheer power and majesty of his face. But based on nothing more than common sense, I think we can all set aside the notion that these knights were lighting up London like a Christmas tree because they were afraid of some people cheering inside the abbey. So if London wasn't burned to save the Duke from the mortal threat of people cheering in French, why did the knights decide the city should suffer? Well, Orderic Vitalis adds some details to Poitiers' account, and those details might give us some hints. Now, Orderic, being very Orderic, says that the devil directly intervened, and he was confusing the knights who were waiting outside. Because... Of course he said that. Orderic appears to have very much believed that supernatural elements were in play, and that this was a dire omen of what was to come. He believed that the Normans and the English were divinely set upon a path to discord. So this was a spiritual war, with, naturally, a spiritual cast of characters who were influencing the outcomes. But whether or not there was a guy with a pitchfork and long tail giggling in the background... What Orderick said next is quite interesting, and I'm not at all surprised that it doesn't appear in Poitiers' account. 
Orderic writes that the fires set by the knights spread quickly, which of course they did. London was built mostly out of wood. And when the people inside the church noticed what was happening, either because they smelled the smoke, heard the screaming, or saw some of the actual flames, well, the people inside the church panicked. Once it became clear that London was burning, throngs of men and women, quote, of all ranks and conditions, end quote, rushed to escape the church in a panic. Now, William, the bishops, and a few clergy stayed back because William hadn't actually been crowned yet. They'd only gotten to the bit where folks agreed to have him as their king. There were still additional rituals and things to be observed before the crown would actually be plopped down on his head. And so, with London burning outside, with the sounds of terrified citizens screaming, knights on horseback rampaging, and assorted nobles trying to find the exit, the holy men were forced to attempt, quote, with difficulty, end quote, to complete the consecration of the king. A king, by the way, who were told, quote, was trembling from head to foot, end quote. Now, meanwhile, the attendees who had fled the church had by now realized what was happening to the city, and they rushed towards the blaze, quote, some to make vigorous efforts to extinguish the flames, and more in the prospect of committing robberies in the confusion that prevailed, end quote. And order closes the event by telling us that the English were enraged by what the Normans had done, and they had lost all faith in them, and many wanted revenge. Yeah, I bet they did. So that's the story as given to us by the faithful Orderic. And here's the thing. Even though he's writing from the 12th century, and even though he clearly has an angle, namely that things are going to get worse, and it's all thanks to El Diablo, the details in this account, if true, give us insight into the worst Christmas London had ever seen. And remember, William had only managed to get an army for Project Seahorse by promising wealth and riches to anyone willing to take part. So these men had no shared affiliation to anything other than this promise that they would get paid. And then William had sweetened the pot by securing a papal sanction for any actions taken in pursuit of the conquest. What William had put together wasn't really an army at all. This was a mercenary company comprised of knights whose only non-martial education basically consisted of, you need to be afraid of God. And then this genius thought to himself that it would be a great idea to tell them that they didn't even need to be afraid of God because the Pope himself promised he would speak to Big J on their behalf. And then, once William crossed the channel with these guys, he ordered them to commit pretty much nonstop atrocities on the local English. A campaign that was so thorough, you can see how the Knights depopulated the South in the Normans' own census years after the conquest. So what sat outside Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day of 1066 were chivalric knights who had spent the last two months shooting the straight black tar heroin version of violence. And rather than having them taper down the adrenaline-fueled brutality, 
William had chosen instead to inject a dose of paranoia straight into this group before sending them into London to root out alleged assassins and rebels. And the knights on this mission had apparently unleashed so much brutality that the city had been thrown into deep mourning. And amidst all of this, apparently, William didn't think to himself, gee, Maybe this gang of bloodthirsty killers might not be the best folks to keep the peace while I'm undertaking the greatest ceremonial event of my life. And considering the panic that overtook the coronation audience, and also considering Ordric's description of William being left behind, terrified and essentially alone at the last point of his ceremony, this suggests that this night's Christmas riot was a surprise. And so the impression that I get from this story is that much like when the knights burned Dover after the surrender, this had likely occurred because A, William really didn't understand the people he brought with him, and he wasn't learning on the job either because he really seems to have been repeatedly blindsided when his knights did exactly the same stuff they've been doing for months, and B, this was a duke who had completely lost control over the situation. William had created a violent culture of avarice that was so endemic and intense that even the nobles who were attending his coronation apparently took advantage of the confusion caused by the fires and began stealing anything that wasn't nailed down. William seems to have inspired a lot of things in the people around him, but loyalty apparently wasn't one of them. William's army appears to have regularly disregarded his orders if they thought it would suit their interests. And that disorder went all the way to the top because Orderic is telling us that even William's closest allies, those who were so highly ranked they were allowed inside Westminster Abbey during this coronation, had bailed in order to grab some loot from the nearby homes of William's new kingdom. This seems like evidence of remarkably weak leadership on the part of William. And against all odds, it actually gets worse. So, as you know from the last episode, despite Poitiers insisting that the coronation was the final act of William's fight for his righteous and godly claim on England, the story that we get from other accounts tells a very different tale. One where William was reluctant to be crowned, given the political state in England, and one where the Archbishop of York was pressing the ceremony upon him because he believed this was the best way to get this Norman Duke to stop killing all the peasants. And if you recall, the thing that finally convinced William was the belief that if he was properly crowned as king, then maybe the resistance he was facing would lessen and he'd be, you know, safer. And when we look at the crown that William commissioned, we find that it's reminiscent of the imperial crown of the Holy Roman Empire. And I think this choice is significant because one of the ways that the emperors tried to knit society together after nasty disputed successions, which the Holy Roman Empire was no stranger to, was to throw a culturally meaty coronation stuffed with all kinds of pious symbolism and vows of religious humility. And all of it, of course, was tied to the majesty of the office, and by extension, the new ruler. And the records suggest that William intended his coronation to be something along those lines. 
Lots of pomp and a big display of wealth and power. But it would also appear alongside a mountain of religious symbols and ceremony. All of this would have demonstrated that William was God's chosen dude. That the conquest was a divine event. A religiously sanctioned transition of power. But instead of getting that, William found himself cowering in fear and taking refuge with a handful of old men in the very church that he was being crowned in. And on what should have been the biggest day of his life, William the Conqueror's grand coronation was, in the end, a hasty and essentially secret ceremony. And rather than being soothed by the display of piety and righteousness, the English instead were sitting in the ashes of their homes and nurturing their grievances. And considering that the attendees of this crowning had abandoned the ceremony to go steal a new washing machine or something, that tells you all you need to know about how even William's closest advisors and allies felt about him and his authority. We have no record of William's thoughts during all of this. But if he was paying attention at all, he must have known that this coronation was making him look weak. And it likely earned him even more enemies than he had before. If Orderick was right, and if there was a devil involved in this situation, it was a devil of William's own making. But here's the thing about William. He doesn't seem to pay attention, at least not to people, not how they work, what drives them, and certainly not how to lead them. William seems to be repeatedly blindsided by the actions of the people that he'd been campaigning with for months. People who he should have known intimately. So William was either uninterested or unaware of this human element in society. And I suspect that the reason for that was because he wasn't all that interested in people. He was interested in something else. Power. But he wasn't the only one making terrible judgment calls. Archbishop Eldred of York had completely misread the situation when he pressed William to take the crown. He had thought that by making William take the solemn divine oaths of a king, that would inspire the Norman Duke to rise to the dignity of the office. Sound familiar? Yeah, people have been trying to do this for literally millennia, and yet they're always surprised when it doesn't work. So those oaths about acting like the best of the kings of England, and of forbidding theft and unjust judgments and generally being a decent dude... Well, those were all just political pickup lines. And unfortunately for the people of England, there was another part of that ceremony that William actually did care about and actually did pay attention to. It was the bit where he was granted absurd degrees of power and authority. As king, he could now elevate people's lives to incredible levels. And he could also break them. This was a degree of power that suited William's ruling style very well. From his earliest days in Normandy, all the way through to the end of his life, William tended to rely heavily upon those closest to him. But this was also balanced by obsessive vengeance towards anyone he perceived as having betrayed him. And that is a huge problem for pretty much everyone. Because William was also deeply jealous and distrustful. So you might be his closest and most trusted companion today, but tomorrow? Well, let's just see about tomorrow. 
And as for the English, man, they were up to their necks in it now. Because forgiveness of past betrayals wasn't something that was particularly strong in William's character. And it seems that as far as William was concerned, pretty much the entire kingdom had betrayed him. And this was the man who had just been handed impossible levels of power in Westminster Abbey. A man with a vindictive streak who heaped cruelty upon the people of England. And it was a cruelty he was convinced they deserved because they wronged him. And you'll never guess what happened next. Version D of the Chronicle tells us that William began his rule with a financial crackdown. Despite his oaths and promises to the contrary, the Norman wealth extraction was put immediately to work, and William imposed severe taxes upon the English. And these taxes weren't like a bunch of 1040 easy forms being sent out. This was a geld, a severe tribute similar to the sort extracted by Viking raiding fleets. And like all gelds, this kind of tribute hit every strata of society. To pay it, valuables would need to be collected from everyone. And if you didn't have enough valuables to pay your share, then food would need to be seized instead. And if that meant you'd spend New Year's Eve eating grasses to tamp down the pain of starvation, well, that's a you problem. These taxes were going to be paid. But what's the worst that could happen with this? I mean, when in the full course of British history have draconian taxes ever come back to bite this family in the ass? And here's the bitter irony about this. It wasn't just raiding fleets who had sought gelds in the past. Later kings of England had gathered gelds as well. Canute had enforced gelds. So did Athelred. A bunch of them did. And actually, it was King Edward who had put a stop to the Harageld, the tax that was imposed to support the king's army. And for half a generation, there had been no Harageld. And now, the man who claimed that he was the restoration of King Edward's legacy was reversing one of King Edward's gentler decrees and immediately looting the country of its wealth. And he was doing so after having spent months looting and burning the South. As historian Bates puts it, the regime was oppressive from the start, and version D of the Chronicle becomes tantamount to a statement that William had almost immediately broken his oath to Eldred and was failing to treat his new English subjects equitably. And as we'll discuss in future episodes, the public at large was livid. And if the Normans were paying any attention to the villages they might have begun to notice something odd. On occasion, a peasant or two, who was unable or unwilling to pay the new punishing taxes, was packing up their supplies and whatever weaponry they had on hand and disappearing into the woods. I'm sure that's nothing to worry about. Now, Poitiers, of course, does his best to clean up what was going on in those early days. And actually, a lot of Poitiers' gesta which was written years after the conquest, appears to have been in direct dialogue with contemporary documents like Version D of the Chronicle. Which would make sense, since William wasn't exactly the kind of person who'd tolerate criticism. So as soon as the scribes of the Chronicle started talking about all the heinous things he was up to, 
it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that he'd hire his own scribe to talk about how attractive and wonderful he is. And Poitiers insists that in his early reign, William was mild, and that he treated the people well, and that he, quote, did not relax in his performance of good works, as usually happens after honors have been increased. But with admirable new zeal, he was inspired to great and noble undertakings as a most worthy king, a title to which our pen takes up in place of that as duke. He devoted himself with equal energy to both secular and divine business, but in his heart was more inclined to the service of the king of kings. End quote. Because, yeah, who can forget the famous Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So get your sword and let's send them to heaven right now. And don't forget to take all their stuff. Classic Jesus. Poitiers actually goes on for quite a while about how great and wonderful William is as a new king. But then he slips and lets in a little fact that seems to confirm what Version D was complaining about. Quote, He distributed liberally what Harold had avariciously shut up in the royal treasure store. End quote. And then Poitiers adds that treasures had been, quote, squandered shamefully in English luxury. Of these, he liberally gave a part to those who helped him win the battle, end quote, and also to the church. Now that's solid spin right there. So these aren't insane tax hikes on the English so he could pay his mercs. No, this is the seizure of squandered wealth, of sinful luxury. And so he took it and gave it to the righteous. But when you look at the contemporary records, it's clear that the contemporary people weren't seeing Bill's alleged piety. Instead, they were suffering and begging for divine intervention. And there's evidence of this immediately. In fact, it was so bad that Version D goes on to say, quote, Ever since has evil increased very much. May the end be good when God will, end quote. It's a prayer for God to get in there and bring an end to this. So yeah, William wasn't exactly winning hearts and minds. And while this is obviously awful for the English, it was a little ominous for the Normans as well. Because William and his knights were outnumbered. Terribly. And that's likely why he either greenlit the looting of London and Dover, or just passively allowed it. And it's also likely why he immediately battered the English with heavy taxes. Because in the end, William knew he needed those mercs to stay with him. They were a minority occupying force. And so he needed every last soldier to stay loyal. He couldn't afford to lose any of them. So he was paying them off. With stuff taken from his new subjects. Looking back, William seems to have been putting out fires without any thought for the problems that he was making for himself in the future. Like the medieval version of kiting checks or a Ponzi scheme. And speaking of kiting checks, there was the matter of administration of lands and titles. William had only suppressed the South. The North and the Midlands remained relatively untouched and had a lot of potential to launch a resistance. So the new king would need to find a way to head that problem off, preferably without starting another war. And the best tool he had right now was granting appointments and titles. Potential rivals could hopefully be bought off with comfortable lifestyles and power. But once again, 
Williams seems to have put expediency over long-term strategy in how he went about this. And I think the best example of this is the case of Ralph the Staller. Ralph was a Breton immigrant who had been in England for, well, pretty much ages. Seriously, ages. This guy had risen in power during the reign of King Edward the Confessor. And by now, he was an old man. So he wasn't the kind of person who was going to rule energetically, nor was he likely to expand his dynasty. At this stage of his life, Ralph probably should have been granted a warm blanket and a place to nap. But instead, what he got was Gerth Godwinson's earldom of East Anglia. Now, why would William do this? Our best guess is that it seems to go along with William's claim to legitimacy in England. The claim that he was simply a continuation of the line of King Edward. So by placing Ralph in East Anglia, William could point to him and say that he was restoring the friends and allies of the old king. And he could do it all for the cost of interrupting an old man's retirement for a couple years. The trouble, though, was that Ralph had a son and heir. And if that son, who was also named Ralph, was a bit more ambitious than his dad, and he was, well, that might end up creating some trouble. But no matter. That was a problem for future Will. For current Will, East Anglia was handled. Next, you have the matter of the East Midlands. And a substantial portion of those lands were governed by Earl Walthioff. You'll remember him as the guy who set the woods on fire after the Battle of Hastings and barbecued a bunch of Normans. This ferocious Earl had a backbone. He was exactly the kind of guy who would be perfect to lead a rebellion against a conqueror. So William made sure that Walthioff got his lands and titles back. And it doesn't even look like he made the Earl pay for it like he did with so many others. I'm sure the thinking was that it was best to not poke that particular bear while things were so unstable. I guess he just had to hope that leaving an energetic war leader in a position of power wouldn't come back to haunt him later. As for the North and the rest of the Midlands, well, things there were a bit more complicated. Earl Edwin of Mercia and his younger brother, Earl Morcar of Northumbria, had withdrawn their troops from London, thus ending the organized resistance against the conquest, really, before it even began. But sources disagree on whether or not the brothers had actually submitted to William. Some claim that they submitted alongside the ill-fated Edgar the Atheling, but others imply that they had merely withdrawn, and that's something very different. Either way, though, William needed to find a way to blunt this threat that the brothers posed, and it seems like he took a two-pronged approach. Orderick claims that William met with Edwin of Mercia, the older brother, and promised him the hand of his daughter, Adelaide, in exchange for peace. Now, this was the same daughter, by the way, that he may have earlier promised to Harold Godwinson. The younger brother, Morcar, got more of a raw deal. Basically, he got nothing. William appointed Copsiga as the Earl of Northumbria beyond the Tyne. And by doing that, he essentially turned Morcar into a figurehead at best. But to be fair, King Harold had already done something similar by appointing Oswulf, the son of Aidwulf, as basically the boy's nanny after Stamford Bridge. So Morcar really had been removed from power anyways when this happened, and it would be hard for him to pin his discontent on William exclusively. But why Copsiga? Why go all in with this guy? Well, the truth is, William would have needed people who understood the situation in the North, 
and Copsiga had served during the reign of King Edward the Confessor. So like with Ralph, Copsiga would have done a good job of linking William to Edward. Except there was one small issue with this. Copsiga had also been the right-hand man of Tostig. And if the North hated anyone, it was Tostig. It's also likely that Copsiga had directly fought against the people of Northumbria at the Battle of Fulford Gate. So while this guy probably knew the lay of the land and was certainly looking for a job with the new administration, he was probably taking some liberties with his resume. Like Tostig, Copsiga was probably claiming that he had plenty of loyal friends and allies in the north. And there's just no way that this guy was popular up there. Not only that, but the former caretaker appointed by Harold, Oswulf's son of Aidwulf, had come from a long and illustrious line of rulers in Northumbria. And you know how Northumbrian dynasties can get when they're usurped. But the likelihood of Northumbrian assassination plots and coups was an issue for future Will. For current Will, this Copsiga guy checked all the boxes. Though we might want to check back in and see how things are going in, oh, I don't know, maybe about five weeks? This was Northumbria, after all. So yeah, William's first administrative moves in the North and the Midlands look more like wiring together powder kegs rather than building bridges. And the way things were being handled in the still-smoking South weren't any better. As you know, the Godwinson boys were all either dead or, in the case of poor Wolfnoth, held prisoner by Billy Bastard. And this meant that the South of England was basically engaged in an estate sale. William had a lot of titles and properties that landed in his lap. And by landed, I mean stolen. But now they had to be given out. And William granted the choice earldoms of Wessex and Kent to his top men. His close companion, William Fitzosburn, who was the son of Osborne the Seneschal, and also to his half-brother, Bishop Odo of Bayeux, the commissioner of the famed Bayeux Tapestry, and also the guy who was running around the Battle of Hastings wielding a club and braining people. Now, Poitiers tells us that Fitzosborne's gifts were granted to him specifically because he was a loyal childhood friend of William's. Because again, William was a guy who was deeply distrustful, which honestly is kind of hard to blame him for, he was from Normandy. But this also meant that if he actually managed to trust someone, he tended to keep them close and reward them generously, at least until he lost that trust. So yeah, Fitzosborne was trusted by William, so he got Wessex. And we're told that he based his administration out of Winchester, which I guess it means it's time for Queen Edith to pack her bags. And we're told that from there, from Winchester... Fitzosborne was positioned to handle the North, which is weird since Winchester is only about a dozen miles from the southern coast. But historian Bates notes that it's likely that the Normans weren't talking about the North the way we do. In this case, the North meant the territory north of the Thames, which might not have been as subdued as the lands that were closer to the southern coast. And that gives you a sense of how desperate the Norman grip on power was at this point. Now, Bishop Odo was given Kent, and he based his administration out of Dover, 
Now, neither of these appointments are surprising. These were battle-hardened nobles who William trusted, and so placing them near the coast and then tasking them with pressing north from their bases of operations, along with whatever reinforcements were brought to them from across the channel, makes perfect sense for an ongoing conquest. And version D of the Chronicle suggests that they set about these tasks with enthusiasm. And shortly after their appointments, they, quote, wrought castles widely through this country and harassed the miserable people. And ever since, has evil increased very much, end quote. And I have to imagine that was pretty much exactly what William had in mind when he made these appointments. But there was one small problem. If you think back, you might remember that William had another companion on this campaign who had a history with Dover. Eustace of Boulogne. And looking at the Ritz, Eustace seems to have been granted command over Wiltshire and Gloucestershire, which are beautiful and strategically important shires. But there was one tiny issue there. Eustace didn't want Wiltshire and Gloucestershire. Eustace wanted Dover. But whatever, that was a problem for future Will. Current Will was just pleased that pretty much the entirety of the far south was in the hands of his allies. And so, with those matters handled, William began to make preparations to return to Normandy. It was probably about late February or early March of 1067. Spring was nearly here, and the weather was improving. There were still some legal matters to be dealt with, but overall, his rule was shaping up nicely, and these English seemed to be falling into line. Except they weren't. All throughout the kingdom, the English people were seething. And we need to be careful not to underestimate the level of hatred that many English would have held for the Normans, even at this early date. You might be tempted to assume that if someone isn't in open rebellion, then they're okay with the situation as it stands. But as many of us have learned through these early days of the 21st century, it's possible to hate a system without being in open rebellion against it. It's even possible to hate it while working within it, cooperating even. But if an opportunity presented itself to take it all down, well, as Orderick tells us, the English were keeping an eye out for their opportunity for revenge. And more people were heading into the woods. William and the Normans had won. But now, they were in grave danger. And with every action, William and his companions were making it worse. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.